Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, June 14th, we are studying Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 20. In today's text, John sees one like a son of man seated on a cloud. He is holding a sharp sickle with which he reaps the harvest of the earth. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Mark Squire. Pastor Squire serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Great. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. So we get started today. Pastor, talk to us a little bit about the book of Revelation as a whole. How should we approach it as Christians so that it remains a helpful and useful book to us? Well, I think that's the key, right? How is this uh, both helpful and useful? Because there's so many different resources and teachings out there about Revelation that can be uh, dangerous and unhelpful. Um, and yeah, Revelation is just a strange book, isn't it? It's It's... <laughs> part of a genre of literature that can be scary, terrifying, and we call this apocalyptic literature, which is just the Greek word that we translate as revelation. But some of the images here are, they can be horrifying. They can be very startling, stark, uh, violent. Uh, and yet, you know, I, I like to joke about this because I think most pastors, the case is that when, if they were to ask the people of their congregation. What do you want to study for Bible study? Oh, pastor, let's do a revelation. Uh, I think in part because it is so enigmatic, but I joke with people that, well, I can do revelation for you in five seconds. Jesus wins. (laughs) There's your study (laughs) of revelation. Uh, But yeah, so what we know about revelation is, is that the apostle John wrote this probably near the end of his life. He's on the island of Patmos in exile. We read that in chapter one, verse nine. And uh, one thing that your listeners should know for certain is that Revelation is not uh, a book that's written in chronological order, as if the things that are happening from chapter 4 through chapter 22 are things that are happening from point A to point B. And we see that also in even the imagery that's used. So when when I say that we don't take Revelation literally, I don't mean we don't take it seriously as the Word of God. What I mean is that the numbers and the images that are used by John, the things that he sees, are symbolic of greater spiritual realities and of things that are, in fact, going to happen in the future and things that are happening currently. So we have to be careful with this because... When we're hearing numbers, and we'll get one of these numbers today in Revelation 14, but certainly some of the images, you know, I, the one that I go to usually is in chapter, is it chapter 18 or 19 with, um, uh, you know, the prostitute of Babylon and these sorts of things. And do I ask, I ask people, do you think that there's going to be a prostitute on a big beast that rises up out of the sea? You know, this, this is obviously not something that's literally happening, but, but symbolic of, of something greater. So I would think that, 
that I want your listeners to know that this is not chronological and it's also something that's heavily symbolical and pointing to something ultimately, of course, that is Jesus' victory over sin, over death, over the power of the devil. Mm. All right. So with that in mind, where do we find ourselves in the book of Revelation in chapter 14? As you said, it's not A to B from 4 to 22, but there are there are connections between the texts. So what do we need to know about the surrounding context to dig into this last part of chapter 14? Yeah, chapter 14 is in the middle of this uh, very long prophetic message. Like I said, chapters 4 through 22 essentially make up the main part of Revelation. There aren't really what you might call easy distinctions between large chunks of the text. They are related. They do build off one another in different ways. But here in chapter 14, we see ourselves at the end of um, what what can be seen as sort of this cosmic war between God and the dragon that begins in chapter 12. And uh, it's also uh, something that we see between these, there's three of these sevenfold visions that John sees. So in, in chapters 8 through 11, and then chapters 14 through 16, we see these different visions uh, of events that are going to unfold, some of these violent happenings, these terror-ridden uh, events from history. Uh, and so chapter 12, like I said, begins with this image of the woman and the dragon and Satan being thrown out of heaven. Uh, and chapter 13 describes various beasts who come to deceive and destroy God's people. And then after our text, we have chapters 15 and 16, which describe more of these plagues and disasters, which... John sees in this sort of increasingly violent or uh, stark cycle, uh, people are dying, you know, bad things are happening in the world, and it, and it reaches its pinnacle with 16 and then into 17, where John really starts to describe what we might call the end of time in greater detail. Mm. So at the end of, of 14, being connected especially to, say, chapters 12 and 13 with the War of the Dragon and, and what he's been trying to do with the beasts, it, it does seem like the end of 14, while maybe not the same climax that we're going to come to after after the bowls are poured out and all that, there does seem to be a, like, we're looking toward the end of all things in this text. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think... Uh, if you look at the way that theologians have interpreted Revelation over history, <clears throat> there seems to be this fairly clear cycle of happenings. So, like I said, it's not a straight chronological account, but almost as if John is seeing the same thing in different ways with different images and with sort of an increasing intensity over and over. And so you're right at the end of 14 with the reaping and the harvest and the wrath of God, these do seem to be symbols and images of, of the end of time. So, so absolutely, I think this, this text does bring us in a way to that, that last day. In, in terms of the, the book of Revelation as a whole, some of the larger themes that we've seen and other texts you know, outside of this more immediate context of 12 to 14, what are some of those ongoing themes and images from elsewhere in the book of Revelation that we should have in mind for this section in 14. Yeah, so I said earlier the main one would be the second coming of Jesus and his ultimate ultimate victory over evil. I mean, this is the big one, and it's it, John lays it out right away in chapter 1 in verses 4 to 7. Jesus is 
the one who has been raised from the dead, and he is the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, he is he's the victor. And so everything that comes to John following chapter 1 is a revelation from Jesus. And in fact, chapters 2 and 3 are direct words from Jesus to the churches, the seven churches that he is supposed to write this down for. But I think, too, um, a couple other things would be the, the increasing terror and affliction of evil. So you have sin, you have the devil, death, God's plagues that are happening. And here we don't get, in 14, uh, 14 to 20, you don't have directly the listing of these things, but, but the judgment of these things. So as you said earlier, looking at the end times, the last day, you have God's final judgment in Christ over evil and over evildoers, which on the other hand, then, if, if God's judgment, and I think I might have mentioned this in a previous study, but um, God's judgment really is a, a two-sided coin. So on the one hand, you have the evildoers who are condemned to eternal punishment, and that's described in any number of ways throughout the scriptures and certainly in Revelation. But also, God's judgment over evil means his vindication for his people and his salvation for his people. So even though there's some violent images here and certainly some 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 ideas that are that offend our sensibilities, maybe I should say, it is still good news ultimately for God's people, because God is finally and ultimately taking care of evil. Hmm. All right. With those things in mind, let's take a look at this text from Revelation 14. We're starting at verse 14. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's our text for today. That is Revelation 14, verses 14 to 20. So, Pastor Squire, as we get started, John looks and he sees, and we know this is one like a son of man. So I think we're looking at Jesus here. Talk to us about the description of this one like the son of man that's given in that first verse. Yeah, I think this is most likely Jesus. I know some will argue that since this is indefinite, you know, like a son of man, that this might not be. But but the description of the white cloud, of the golden crown, this and, and certainly uh, this phrase the son of man or a son of man all seem to allude to Jesus in God's glory. So starting with that son of man language that comes generally from Ezekiel, from Daniel, uh, from some of these uh, instances of Old Testament apocalyptic literature. So the the son of man is the one who's coming 
uh, to rule and to reign. And so, of course, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But these other images too, so the crown, for example, a golden crown would uh, describe even for us today the image of a king, so somebody who's ruling. But I think it also stands in stark contrast to Jesus who wore a crown of thorns. So you have Jesus who was crucified. And even in John's gospel, well, especially in John's gospel, I might say, you have Jesus showing the disciples his hands and his side, and certainly most viscerally with Thomas, right? So put your fingers here, you know, touch me, it's me, right? Um, And then the white cloud too, which goes all the way back to the Old Testament, you have instances in Exodus and the people wandering in the wilderness of God's glory, looking like a cloud anywhere from when they left Egypt and as, as the cloud led them, but also at the tabernacle and in the temple. You have God descending in his glory like a cloud that no one could go into because this is God's glory. But certainly also you have Jesus connected with this then at his transfiguration. So Peter, James, and John are invited up to the mountain. Moses and Elijah are there, and this cloud envelops them. And Jesus' clothes become dazzling white. And then also at his ascension, too. So Jesus is hidden by a cloud. And it's not just, I don't think that Jesus is saying, oh, you know, you can't see me anymore. But but I think a, a fulfillment then of he's he's entering the glory of God. So when we confess in the creed, that he sits at the right hand of the Father. You have an image of this at his ascension. And now here, I think, with the white cloud and the Son of Man and the golden crown, uh, there's this description of his glory and, and his victory. Mm. Well, and, and connecting it to the ascension, I think, is right on, and especially with the way that the angels come to the disciples there on the mountain, and they say, the one he's going to return the same way you saw right. him go. So I think the the cloud there points to his ascension and then his return as well. Again, I think pushing us toward what we were saying at the beginning, that we're thinking about the last day here. So the the white cloud and the Son of Man and the golden crown, all of these things are are relatively familiar when it comes to Jesus. But then here he's holding a sharp sickle. And I think that's where the, the image starts to surprise us a little bit. So talk to us about the sickle. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine that most people have never held a sickle. Have I, you? I don't I don't think I have. No, not that I, don't I can think I have either. Yeah. I've held a trident, but not a not a sickle. <laughs> um but a sickle, yeah, it's it's something that was used throughout history as a an instrument of harvest. So this long curved knife uh, blade, I guess I, I should say technically, that you could cut down uh, stalks of grain or grasses or, or whatever much more quickly than you could with, say, a knife or scissors or something like that. Um, so it's a, a symbol of harvest, and certainly in its in its regular realm, there's nothing special about it. It's, it's, a, it's a tool. It's an instrument. But when we get all of this harvest imagery, it becomes sort of startling in that... Uh, it's the basis for even today what we have come to know as the Grim Reaper. You know, somebody who stands there in a robe ready to take somebody who's dying away uh, and generally has negative connotations, right? So <laughs> surrounded with death, with judgment. Uh, so sickle is something that we see and we're not all that comfortable with because it means that the end has come 
and you know something's going to change. Mm. Okay, so the sickle is is I mean I think the thing we should keep in mind before we say whether it's a negative or a positive connotation because I think that's maybe something we can talk about in this text because there there maybe is a little bit of both. I'm I'm not sure. I, I definitely can see the negative toward the end, but I wonder if maybe there is some positive connotation to the sickle to get started. But first and foremost, this is harvest imagery that we're talking about. So give us some of the the Old Testament and New Testament background with the idea of harvesting. And, and if there's sickles elsewhere in particular, I think that's helpful too. Yeah, so um, expressly a sickle is used in Joel chapter 3. So in verse 13, you have the prophecy which says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So we're going to see some of that additional imagery too later on. But certainly, again, the sickle expressly connected with harvest, but certainly the harvest then being an image of the last day, which is what we see reflected then in Mark uh, chapter 4, for example. Jesus tells a parable, and uh, it might be listed in your listeners' Bibles as something like the parable of the seed growing. And Jesus tells a parable of a man scattering seed on the ground, and he sleeps, and the seed sprouts, and it grows and the earth produces, and then when the grain is, grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And so it's this short parable, simply that the kingdom of God is like a harvest, which is to say something has been planted, something has grown, and then the time has come when the fruit will be gathered together. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right on to say that the sickle inherently is neither positive nor negative. It sort of depends on who you are and what side you're on in the same way that if I were to say Jesus is coming, you may be joyful or you may be terrified. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think that's, as you said, our image in our context of the grim reaper holding a sickle starts to put a negative connotation in our minds when we see this, you know, I mean, I, I even said to you before we were st- we started, this is Jesus the grim reaper, which sounds like a negative thing. But again, I, I think we're going to see both aspects of the harvest, or maybe there's both aspects of the harvest here when it comes to the, the separation. That's, that's really where the positive-negative connotations come in, is with the separation of the harvest, not necessarily the harvest itself. Right. Yeah. All right. So we've got... The Son of Man, he's holding the sharp sickle in his hand. And then, and, and if the Son of Man is Jesus, which it does seem likely, another angel comes out of the temple, and he calls out to Jesus as the Son of Man to now put in the sickle and reap because the hour is come. Uh, talk about the role of the angel here and, and what's going on there in, in verse 15. Yeah, it's interesting because angels are front and center throughout Revelation. Now, certainly you see them pop up um, in other places throughout the scriptures, but it's sort of startling if you were to just say type an angel to Bible Gateway, for example. It comes up and you can see the five instances in this book, three instances in this book, and Revelation is just, boom, 75 <laughs> mentions of angels. So angels are very important. And of course, the, the word angel just means messenger. So this isn't necessarily one class of spiritual being, you know, different uh, different spiritual beings have different vocations or offices or whatever. But but these messengers come and they're announcing or bringing about or assisting in the different aspects of God's judgment. So here, this seems to be 
what you said, this last day imagery, this final call, you know, it's, it's time. So put out the sickle, bring in the harvest. Uh, we do see throughout scripture some, some other images of angels connected in this same way. In one of Jesus' parables, he explains uh, the parable of the weeds, I believe, where, you know, the, the weeds and the, the grain grow together and, and the, the farmer says, don't pull up the weeds because you'll pull up the grain. But when he explains it, he says that the workers are the angels. So the angels have some sort of responsibility in terms of judgment, in terms of the last day, in terms of this uh, gathering and separation that, uh, to use the image of, of the parable, you know, some are are gathered into the barns and others are, are gathered outside and, and burned, right? Because they're, they're useless, they're worthless. But here again, with that harvest imagery, God's judgment, the end times, uh, the angels end up playing a part of this. It's not just God in himself or, or Jesus just zapping and, and making all things happen, but, but that the angels do play a role. Yeah, and, and even in, say, Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats, which I don't, I always kind of hesitate to call that a parable. I think that's a maybe a picture of the last day, but I don't know that's right. a parable. But there, Jesus does talk about that the Son of Man, when he comes in his glory, the angels will be with him. Mm-hmm. So the, the angels are playing a role on the last day, and I think you you see that here. I suppose what what's a little surprising, at least as I read it, and I suppose this is just the nature of apocalyptic literature, is that Jesus is holding the sickle, and the angel tells Jesus to use the sickle and do the reaping. That that strikes me as unusual, but again, I with apocalyptic apocalyptic literature, I, I think I can I can take that. Yeah. It just it just seems like it's maybe out of order than the picture that I would have I would have imagined, but. Yeah, I, I think I think you're onto something, and I think we see this um, maybe even in worldly terms. I know the the coronation of King Charles wasn't that long ago, for example, and you see, I I didn't really see a whole lot of it, but you see a lot of this pomp and circumstance, and I think there are certain people who play these roles simply of announcing what's happening, and that's perhaps what's going on here. Not that the angel is somehow commanding Jesus, but sort of just it's time to put out the sickle. Right? Sure. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that the idea of the pomp and circumstance surrounding an event like this, that the angel makes the announcement of it more than directing Jesus. And of course, as an angel is a messenger, the angel's not speaking this of his own volition, but this is a message that he is delivering from the Father, speaking now, this is what's happening. So the, the announcement is made to put in the sickle to reap, the hour to reap has come, the harvest is fully ripe. And then it happens in verse 16. He who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So talk to us about more about this idea of harvest on the last day. Yeah, this harvest, this reaping, seems to be this image of the gathering for judgment. So you mentioned Matthew 25, for example, the, the end of Jesus' discourse before his passion and death. And I think this gathering together, people understand images like this, and Jesus was very eager to speak in these sorts of ways that people would have understood farming, shepherding, images, these these sorts of things. People would have known what it looks like to, to gather up the fruits of the earth. And I think a lot of the various images that are somehow related throughout the Old Testament when it comes to farming, growing, uh, husbandry, all of these things overlap in some ways. Um, it's like you said, it's it's neither positive nor negative. It's just 
it's happening. They're, they're, it's natural. It's the natural conclusion of what God has done throughout history. So he's been planting. Things have been growing, bearing fruit, and now the time has come for the end, right? So it's it's a good image in that it's something easily recognizable. It's something that we understand as completeness that something is ready and it's done and this is this is the time and if it doesn't happen it's it's not going to happen you know when harvest comes doesn't matter what time of year it is what the weather is you know farmers are going to get out there and they're going to harvest because it's it's time to harvest yeah yeah well that's what i was i was thinking about that very point about the harvest and the, the points of comparison and there's there's probably a number but in the context of the last day, just the inevitability of it, or the fact that it it is here, there's no yeah. stopping it at this point. And you think about the urgency that's related to this this matter of the harvest elsewhere in the Gospels and, and the last day, that that hour will come, and when it's here, that's that. There, there's just nothing that can be done, because that's what time it is. When the harvest is here, you harvest, and so yeah. that's what's happening here. Right. Yeah, and Jesus, you know, speaks in these terms too that you know, the the hour is coming. And throughout the Old Testament, of course, you have the the day of the Lord, uh, that great and and I think the King James version has terrible day, right? But this terrifying, great, amazing, wondrous, uh, fearful, awful day, right? Uh, but it's it's inevitable. So God has set into motion all of these events, and there is a natural end. And it's, it's coming, and you see the urgency even in the apostles throughout the book of Acts say that they're saying, this is coming, right? So repent. Uh, so this would be, as we talk about this text, this would be, I think, one of the functions of the text is to remind or warn people, this, this is coming, whether you like it or not. Yeah, that's right. So the, the harvest on the last day is coming. I think that's what we're seeing a picture of here in Revelation 14. The New Testament also speaks about the harvest in terms of the way that preachers go out today. And I think that's something for us to consider, but let's let's pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking about the end of Revelation 14 with Pastor Mark Squire this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, June 14th. We're studying Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 20 with Pastor Mark Squire. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, prior to the break, we were talking about this image of the harvest that happens in verse 16. And in the context of this chapter, it seems like we are looking at the harvest on the last day. But we noted before the break that there are other places in the Scripture which speak about the harvest that's happening now. The verse that comes to my mind is where Jesus tells his apostles, I think it's in Matthew 9, it might be in the other Gospels, 
But he says to them, pray to the Lord of Harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Mm -hmm. So that what's happening right now is the idea of there's a harvest that's happening right now in anticipation of the last day. So maybe talk a little bit about that. How's the harvest happening right now, and how does that relate to what's going to happen in the harvest on the last day? Yeah, so when you think about planting, growing, bearing fruit, all of these things, this is all part of and leading up to the final harvest, of course. But you're right, end of Matthew 9, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray uh, to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out laborers. And and in fact, we do have a prayer in a Lutheran service book, for example, for the increase of the holy ministry. So the prayer is addressed to Almighty and Gracious God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've commanded us to pray that you would send forth laborers into your harvest. Of your infinite mercy, give us true teachers and ministers of your word who truly fulfill your command and preach nothing contrary to your holy word. Grant that we, being warned, instructed, nurtured, comforted, and strengthened by your holy word, may do those things which are well-pleasing to you and profitable for our salvation. So you see there are a couple things going on, at least least a couple things. One is that the harvest is beginning now in the sense that those who are participating in the work of the kingdom are sharing God's word. So you have pastors and teachers, for example, and certainly we can include others in this, parents and and whoever else. But people who are teaching God's word, passing on God's word, uh, and certainly people who are bearing fruit in the kingdom in any number of ways. So what's going on now as God's word is planted in hearts, as it grows, as it bears fruit, this is all part of what's leading up to the harvest on the last day. And we need people to participate in that, both publicly as, as pastors, for example, or certainly in, in homes and everyday lives of, of our families. But the other thing, too, gets to the, the function of what this prayer is that Jesus commands and what these words in Revelation are, which is to say that the truth, the reality of the harvest is to warn and instruct and nurture and comfort and strengthen. So you have both the what we might call positive and negative types of uh, types of ideas together. So certainly God's word can can warn or um, exhort us, but it can also encourage us. It can comfort us. It can nurture us. So when we see here the Son of Man, we see the one who is described in First Corinthians 15 as the first fruits from the dead. So we can we can say quite confidently that the harvest has begun because God has raised Jesus from the dead. So now we're living in that reality, but not the completeness of that reality. So the harvest has begun, but the work there's still work to do. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking about this maybe in, in terms of the way that, at least I, I think about baptism, and the way that baptism joins us now to Christ's death and resurrection, so that at the resurrection on the last day, because I've already gone through that, I know what the result will be on the last day. Maybe something similar with the idea of a harvest, because the Lord has made me a part of his harvest now through the preaching of the word, working faith through the Holy Spirit. When that harvest on the last day comes, I know to which side I'll be gathered. Right. Yeah, there, there won't be a doubt in our minds because we are his. We can say, I'm baptized into Christ. I've been and not to mix images, but I've been crucified with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I've been raised yeah. with Christ. So I'm I am a, a brother with the one who's described as the first fruits. Yeah, I'm I am on his side. 
Yeah. Okay. So, so this is where we are so far. We've got the harvest being brought in there in verse 16. As we said, it's, it's really not a positive or a negative image at this point. It's simply the harvest, the time has come. It's as now another angel comes out in verse 17, and there's another sharp sickle, and there's a command more about the harvest and where this harvest is taken. That's where this image starts to take more of the the grim reaper type connotation of of the harvest. So give us some of the details. In verse 17, we've got another angel. He's holding a sharp sickle. What's going on here? Yeah, this seems to be a, a second harvest, and it, it's sort of confusing to read through this and think, well, what are there two harvests? Are there two judgments? You know, what's going on? But I think what I see throughout Scripture is that when God repeats things, it tends to to confirm what He said. So, for example, when Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, he says, "Your two dreams are one." You know, God has set out to do this, and He's going to do it. And I I wonder if that's what's going on here because. The first one seems to be this general image of of a harvest of reaping, and, and we can't say one way or the other. This just seems to be everyone, whereas what we see in the last four verses, starting at verse 17, is quite a negative connotation. So I, I don't know why the focus shifts here specifically to that, but I think, again, if we're going to think about sort of both the warning and the comforting here, depending on what side you're on, that the harvest isn't just going to be a gathering, but that there is going to be a separation and that God's wrath will be poured out on on evil. So, you know, whether you think about this as two separate harvests or or however you think about it, it it becomes clear that nothing and no one will be left out of it. You know, everything will be harvested. And depending on who you are, that that will mean (laughs) different things. Sure. Yeah, I mean, maybe another place to think about in Scripture would be the Genesis 1 and 2, how in Genesis 1 you have the account sure. of all the days of creation, and then in chapter 2 you zoom in especially on the creation of man, not as two separate accounts, but as a particular thing to pay attention to. Perhaps something similar here, that the first couple verses are the, the whole of the harvest, and now John wants, or Jesus, in giving this revelation to John, wants us to pay attention especially to the the harvest that happens to the wicked, something right. like that, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And I, you know, because in the first one again, you have no explicit sign of condemnation; it's just harvest. But now, as we get into these last verses, this this gets pretty pretty violent and graphic, and it, it's very clearly a judgment of condemnation. So, in this this judgment that's described as a judgment of condemnation, in verse eighteen, this another angel is going to come out from the altar. And he has authority over the fire. So talk about the inclusion of fire within this image of harvest now. Yeah, I think two things. One, the first, that fire in connection with with something like this usually is a sign or an intensifier of, of judgment. So when Jesus speaks of eternal punishment, he calls it, you know, the fire that will not be quenched. So that could be part of this here. I think also, if you're looking back in within Revelation and back in chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, you have the angel who has the golden censer before the altar to offer incense. And so incense, of course, is this smoldering or slow-burning material that is swung or, or wafted out. And it's generally a symbol of prayers, which is exactly what John says there in, in chapter 8, that these are the saints' prayers. So you can see this perhaps as 
the angel who is bringing about in some way the answer to the prayers of the saints who are asking God, how long? You know, when are you going to vindicate us? And, and this is then where, where this shows up. Yeah, I mean, as, as I was thinking about fire in connection with harvest, John the Baptist does make this connection for us, where he talks about the, the harvest at the end, and the wheat's gathered into the barn, and the chaff is burned with fire. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, I suppose that's a natural connection. The thing that maybe throws a wrench into that here is that we're not harvesting wheat here right. with yeah. a sickle. We're harvesting grapes, which, I again, I, I've never held a sickle but I, I don't think you normally use a sickle to harvest grapes. So why suddenly are we talking about harvesting grapes? Yeah, it's, it's really, it's a mixture of images, which, I mean, happens all throughout the scriptures. You certainly wouldn't use a sickle to harvest grapes. Um, but I think here with the inclusion of the grapes, this connects with so many different uh, places in scripture. Now, almost immediately, you go back just earlier in chapter 14, where in verses 9 and 10, those who worship the beast will, quote, drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. So there you kind of have everything together. But more generally, throughout the scriptures, especially in the prophets, you have this image of God actually planting a vineyard. So God being a vine dresser, a, a planter of vineyards, an owner of a vineyard, and, and Jesus picks up on this in his parables as well. And Isaiah 5 is probably the most poignant place to look. And it's really, it's sad, it's heartbreaking to read the first part of Isaiah 5 because what Isaiah describes, and then, you know, Jesus again later on in the Gospels, is a God who has done everything possible for the success of his people. And yet when he looked for the harvest, you know, he didn't find grapes, he found wild grapes. And there becomes this play on words, you know, he, he righteousness and justice is what he wanted, but he found a bloodshed and an outcry. And when you're reading this in Hebrew, the words sound alike. But there's this tragic irony here that although God plants, the harvest then is taken in and uh, God treads it underfoot and it's it's pretty much thrown out. You're not going to do anything with it. It just flows out. And you have this mixture then of of the image of wine and blood. And and so it's, it's... it's, it's tragic because on the one hand, all people are God's creation and God loves the world that he sent Jesus to die for them. And yet uh, there will be a judgment of condemnation because plenty of people have turned away, have not borne fruit for the kingdom and on and on. Yeah. So, I mean, with bringing up the image of a vineyard and grapes, then the image of judgment that we're seeing here seems to be maybe a little more focused than just judgment in general but especially on those who had heard the word, perhaps even believed the word, and then fallen away. I mean, I think that's the picture in Isaiah chapter 5 for sure, is the, the great love and care that the Lord exercised for his Old Testament people, Israel, and the way that they continually rejected him. Mm-hmm. So we're, again, maybe just to, to sharpen the focus here a little bit, the image of this harvest now is is not just, you know, the pagans, but particularly those within the church that maybe had to use Jesus' language in Matthew 7, they were crying out, Lord, Lord, but they never really knew him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's consistent throughout scripture. You have this in the gospels. For example, Jesus will say that the judgment will be 
uh, easier in some way. I don't know what this means, but the judgment will be easier for Tyre and Sidon, for Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, because the people who are here listening to the words of Jesus, you know, the words straight from the mouth of the Son of God, who have heard and turned away, this is the ultimate judgment. And so you see then, too, in the epistles that, again, I don't know what this means practically, but, you know, those who have heard and rejected will get a harsh beating, and those who never heard will get a light beating, right? So this this seems to be those like, for example, the religious leaders of uh, Jesus' time who heard and even hearing the accounts of Jesus' resurrection and yet covered it up, worked against it, continued to persecute the apostles and on and on. So, yeah, this like I like your image of one, Genesis one and two because it seems to be zooming in on a specific set of people, which is to say, not just sinners, right, <laughs> but people who have say blasphemed the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and and what again? What makes it particularly tragic is the fact of of how much love God has shown. To this group of people, you know, Isaiah 5, with the description of the vineyard of the Lord and how he's cared for it in every possible way, Uh, one of the New Testament places I can think of, I think it's in Luke 13, where Jesus talks about a fig tree, and the, I think the owner of the vineyard wants to cut it down, but the vineyard, or the the gardener, the vine dresser says, no, no, give me another year, I'm going to fertilize it, and I'll care for it, and then if, if nothing, if there's no fruit, I'll cut it down. Right. I mean, again, just that that great love and concern that God has shown for His church and and for all people, and that's continually rejected. It just makes mm-hmm. it all the more tragic. I suppose on the on the positive side, while we are still on this side and we haven't yet reached this harvest, look for that love and care and concern of God, and and trust in that, and and don't reject it. It's, right. It serves as a warning and, and then an encouragement for us as we wait for this day to come. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think uh, you're right to point to the care and love of God. And you see this in a different way in, say, Mark 12, the parable of the tenants, where you wonder why this this owner is continually sending more servants and then finally says, well, I'll send my son. Well, that seems silly. It seems idiotic. Why would you send your son when all these servants have been killed? And yet it's not sort of idiocy. It's It's the love and care and persistence of the owner that maybe they'll change, right? Maybe they will listen this time. And so not only is the, is God the God who sends rain even among the wicked, but he's the one who sends pastors and evangelists and apostles and teachers and, and all of these people out to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And he wants them to listen. And yeah. yet, as we see tragically, not everyone does. Yeah. So looking then at the imagery that's here of what happens for those who, who have heard but have rejected that overwhelming love of God— uh, the image, again, is the harvest of the grapes. These grapes are ready, they're ripe. And so the angel swings his sickle, he gathers the grape harvest, and this is where the, the image does become quite visceral. The, the grapes are thrown into a great wine press of the wrath of God. Talk to us just about that imagery of, of the wine press connected to God's wrath. So several times throughout the scriptures, especially in the prophets, you have this image of the wine press connected with God's wrath. So for example, Jeremiah 48, you have verse 33, where it says, Gladness and joy have been taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. I have made the wine cease from the wine presses. No one treads them with shouts of joy. The shouting is not the shout of joy. And I think there you even see that God does not take pleasure 
in the death of the wicked. This is not some sort of angry, uh, unmerciful God who, who takes pleasure in, in any of this judgment. Uh, but there you have you know, Jeremiah 48. You also have Lamentations 1, which, again, written by Jeremiah. But verse 15, the Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. So there you have God's people, you know, the people of Judah, uh, who, again, have turned away to idolatry. And what's happened? Well, he sent the Babylonians to burn down the walls of Jerusalem, to, to ransack the city, to carry people off into exile, and destroy the temple. So, and then, you know, again, Joel 3, which we, we've already read. But this is, this is a common image of God's wrath, in part because the winepress, and, and I, I've never seen this with my own eyes, certainly have never done it, but this is how wine was made for most of history. You know, how do you, how do you get the juice out of, out of grapes in an efficient and an efficient manner as possible. Well, you put them in a vat and you stomp on it, and, and the juice comes out. So there's there's an image that people would have recognized that you start with these grapes and they look fine, and yet when you're done with them, they're just this pile of skins and mush, and and the juice which has already begun to ferment right away uh, is is pouring out, and which in this world is a good thing. You want the juice, you want the wine, right? But but when it gets connected with harvest, there's this violence of the feet, which are pushing down and stomping and the, the constant nature of this, that you know, the grapes aren't going to escape. You know, they're going to get every last right. ounce of juice out of this. Right, right. Well, and then as the image is completed, that in verse 20, when the wine press full of grapes now is being stomped, What's flowing out is blood, right, yeah. and and it's as high as a horse's bridle for sixteen hundred stadia, which I, I don't know the exact measurements there, but that sounds pretty significant. Yeah, it does, and you know measurements in the ancient world weren't necessarily precise, but you have a horse. I mean, a horse's bridle. You think about even tall horses, you know, several feet, right? Several feet high, but sixteen hundred stadia would have been over hundred and eighty miles. So this would have been far beyond what a human eye can see. I've, I've heard, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but um, something like if, if a match is lit from like 50 miles away, if you're on a tall hill, you can see that match lit. So I don't know how many miles it is, but this is well beyond what, what we can see, right? So as far as the eye can see and beyond, the blood is, is probably as tall as a person and and as wide as 180 miles. I mean, this is, this is a lot of blood, which is, it means this is a significant judgment. Hmm. So with this significant judgment, the, the winepress being trodden, doesn't Isaiah talk about the Lord as one treading a winepress? And it seems to me that he talks about the, the robes being stained with the, the blood, the grape juice. Yeah, so you go to Isaiah 63. This is where Isaiah uses this image for the Lord, that he's trodden the winepress alone, in his anger and in his wrath, it says in verse three, their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. I mean, this is this is violent imagery, right? But he explains this as vengeance and redemption, but also his arm of salvation, right? But verse six is really where it comes to a climax. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So in other words, you know, this is something we can understand. If you lose your blood, you die, right? Mm -hmm. So the blood coming out 
is a symbol of death. I mean, that's why it's called lifeblood properly in the in the Old Testament. This is where the life is. So if you don't have blood, you don't you don't live, right? There are plenty of things you can live without from days and weeks to at least seconds and minutes. But if you don't have any blood, you're, you're not going to last. Yeah. So they're they're dying. They're being judged. Talk to us about the detail there in verse twenty that this is happening outside the city. Yeah, I think this is interesting because, well, for various reasons. One, because God's city is often called his holy city. This is the place where God dwells. It is pure. It is without sin. And so it would be, apart from God's glory and character, to do this sort of within his holy place. So even in the temple, for example, you had blood in the temple, but it was being offered as a sacrifice of atonement. But the sacrifice itself is made outside. So it's the blood is being brought in to make atonement. And I know I'm kind of mixing mixing things here, but ultimately what's happening is that this 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 judgment happens kind of out from God's holy place. So that sin and evil and all of these things are being driven out from God's presence. They will no longer be by God or his people. Uh, but I think most importantly, this this seems to be, I, I don't know how you can read this as a Christian without hearing the account of Jesus here in the sense that uh, where was Jesus' sacrifice made? Well, they took him outside of the city of Jerusalem and there they crucified him. And I think the author of Hebrews also makes this point. Uh, so I'm not making this up, right? This is right in the Bible, uh, that Jesus was offered his blood as a sacrifice outside of the city. So I think there are at least echoes here of the wrath of God, which, you know, as we talk about these intensifying cycles, even though this is last day imagery, this has happened in a way already on the shoulders of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I think that connection is there because it it reminds me of a little bit of what we talked about in Revelation six, when the sixth seal is opened and you see all of these great signs and wonders that sound an awful lot like Good Friday, yeah. <laughs> and the question is asked at the end of that, you know, who can stand? And then you see that vision of the saints standing in white robes. There's the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it does seem that what we're seeing here is a, you know, that repetition with intensity, that even as we see this great visceral harvest and, and the, the terrible outpouring of God's wrath, there is that clue within there of the way to escape that wrath of God. And it, it's found in the one who was sacrificed for us outside the city, who shed his blood for us so that, right. that our robes might be made white. So I, I think you're right on to, to see that. And I think there's, a, a you know, again, that, that comfort, that hope that's there in this book, even in just that small detail. So we've got about three minutes here, Pastor Squire. Uh, reflecting on this, this section of, of Revelation 14, this harvest, talk to us about some of the connections, the applications for us as, as the Church today from this text. Mm-hmm. I think to pick up again with Jesus, I mean, John wrote Revelation, and so John is also the one of the four gospel writers who mentions the blood and water pouring from Jesus' side, right? So you you see that the wrath of God has been poured out, and Jesus is not just shedding his blood as, you know, through his hands and side, or through his hands and head with the, the crown of thorns, but, you know, when his side is pierced, blood blood pours out. So you have, again, God's full wrath poured out on Jesus so that all sins, everybody's sins are forgiven. 
you know, this is, this is a universal atonement. Jesus died for the sins of the world. You know, if we're going to take this seriously, this is, this is a complete sacrifice. And so there you do have this hope and this comfort for the people of God, those who are clinging to this message, those who, whose robes, like you said, have been washed white by the blood of the lamb. These are the people who, when they're looking forward to judgment day, are, are looking forward in anticipation. It is a great and a fearful day. Um, but in a similar way to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, you know, when somebody dies, we grieve, but we don't grieve without hope, right? So when we look forward to Judgment Day, yeah, I'm, I'm not looking forward to the upheaval, but certainly the hope of Jesus' return, knowing that he has paid the price for sin, that he has saved his people, that even now he sits at God's right hand as the ruler of heaven and earth. So with the comfort then also naturally comes the warning, right? So you mentioned earlier, this is a warning to people. This is an inevitable judgment. And so, for example, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, now is the favorable time, behold, now is the day of salvation, we should hear that and think, we shouldn't fall asleep. (laughs) We shouldn't be unready for this. This is coming. Uh, And the wrath will be full. It will be complete. It will be the end of sin and evil and death. So you, know, you want to be on the right side. You want to be on God's side. And that can only happen through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So we, we cling to him. We put our hope in the one who has shed his blood for us so that we might be spared from the wrath of God on the last day, safe on the day of harvest, gathered into his barn for all eternity. Pastor Mark Squire is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. He's been helping us today to study Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 20. Pastor Squire, thanks for being our guest today. You're welcome, and I'll just add as we pray with the whole church, amen, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this part of Revelation 14, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.